0: Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham.
1: Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live, from Ottawa, Ontario, a city that is increasingly starting to slowly feel like spring as we enter March here in 2021. And one of the great things about spring in Ottawa is the Tulip Festival. Every spring, the city celebrates the tulips that grow all over the city. Tourists come in, you can look at the tulips, there's other events going on. And of course, the Tulip Festival is part of a relationship between Canada and the Netherlands that dates back to the Second World War and the liberation of the Netherlands at the end of the war. And one of the things that I had never considered about that moment in time, was all the work that went into it from a civilian perspective. The management of the relationship between Canada, its forces, and civilians in the Netherlands. And one of the reasons is that that area of the Second World War doesn't get a lot of attention. But, fortunately, it is the subject of a new book entitled Civilians at the Sharp End, First Canadian Army Civil Affairs in Northwest Europe. This is by our friend David Boris, who you might know from the Cool Canadian History podcast. And he has written about the civil affairs work of the Canadian Army. Really focuses on that June 1944 from D-Day into June of 1945. And the work that was done by civil affairs fascinating book talks about a lot of the lessons that were learned from some earlier conflicts and certainly earlier in the war where the military was concerned about its relationship with civilians the possibility that civilians could interfere with movement of troops in some military operations you certainly saw that at the start of the war as the military was retreating you have civilians who are on the road refugees trying to get out from danger that could interfere with military operations. So there was this whole effort put into civil affairs so that relationships could be managed. And what we see during 44 into 45 is as the Canadians and the allies push further into Europe, the civilians that are left behind, they need access to services. And they need to be ensured that they are safe and it's up to the civil affairs officers to manage those relationships very fascinating story so i was very fortunate to have david join me to discuss the book to talk about the work of the canadian army civil affairs during the latter part of the second world war so let's get right to my conversation with david boris all right and david boris joins us now from the other side of the country david how you doing
0: I'm well, Sean. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty good, probably a little chillier than you are out on the West Coast. This is the time of year where us in Central Canada, or or I shouldn't say us, me living in Central Canada, always gets mad at the West Coast. You see pictures of sunny skies and flowers and people in T-shirts, and I just think, I don't like these people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, then you wouldn't like it today because it's sunny and it's uh, relatively mild. Although I don't see any T-shirts yet.
1: Okay. All right. That makes me feel good. (laughs) No T-shirts yet. (laughs) So as I said, off the top, David has written a book called Civilians at the Sharp End, First Canadian Army Civil Affairs in Northwest Europe and the host of the Cool Canadian History Podcast, which we will talk about a little later. And David, I just want to start with the book, of course. And one of the things that I noticed, uh, I had the opportunity to go through before we started to talk and I'm always curious with military historians. And I was going through the book. One of the things right at the start is a full page of acronyms and abbreviations Mm -hmm. for, for folks. And I work in the federal government. And when I started working in the federal government, my goal was to learn as few acronyms as possible. (laughs) Uh, And they just, there's something about them uh, to me, at least in the government sense, they feel very bureaucratic, but I know In the military, they are necessary and folks use them. So I'm just curious for you writing this book and thinking about accessibility and audience, how do you try to use acronyms and abbreviations? And for anyone coming to this book, how can readers prepare themselves to ensure that they're familiar with some of the terminology that's used when they might be civilians coming into a book that is, of course, about the military?
0: yeah that's a really good question um i mean i would I would say to anyone picking up the book unfamiliar with the acronyms to just don't don't worry about it <laughs> <To> just, <laughs> to just, honestly just start start reading and and the, the main acronyms that like things like shayef and stuff the supreme headquarters allied expeditionary force um the, the the key ones will pop up time and time again and and, and am got or ca civil affairs things like that that'll that that'll that'll be driven home pretty pretty clearly in the book itself i would i would tell most people don't don't fuss over the acronyms uh, uh the the key ones you'll remember because they play a central role in the narrative anyways.
1: Right. Yeah. They come up repeatedly like civil affairs, for instance, and civil affairs officer. And yeah, they do, they do come up uh, certainly regularly in the book. So let's talk about civilian affairs. This is something that, People who've listened regularly know that I have some involvement with some military history, but civilian Mm -hmm. affairs is something that hasn't really ever occurred to me. It's something that I, for one, have taken for granted in thinking about the way civilians responded to Canadians overseas during the the World Wars. So Mm -hmm. what are civilian affairs and how prominent a part of the military have they been historically?
0: Well, um, prior to the Second World War, In the Canadian military, they were non-existent. Uh, Frankly, the the organization known as Civil Affairs was basically invented during the Second World War for the particular aspects of liberation and occupation that the Second World War would bring to uh, both the British and the Canadian Army. So the story of civil affairs is rooted in a longer history of British imperial administration. Um, But when the Second World War erupted, the Allied leadership understood that they were going to be dealing with large, large populations of civilians, many of them concentrated in urban spaces, and most of them dealing with some sort of destruction or, or you know, uh, collateral damage from the war. So it really is, you know, in the opening year and a half of the Second World War uh, in the Second World War in Europe, so from, you know, into into 1940, uh, into the summer of 1940, that the Allied leadership begin to sort of discuss what are we going to do about the civilian populations when we return to Europe? Because one of the big issues comes from the fact that in June of 1940, when France is collapsing or falling to the German to the Germans, uh, there are tens of thousands of refugees clogging up the road networks of France. This is making it very very difficult for Uh, uh, at the time, the French and the British to move about the battlefield, to move about the country. And this becomes a very, 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 you know, real concern for the Allied leadership. Once they've sort of retreated back to Great Britain, Uh, they begin to sort of say to themselves, well, what are we going to do when we get back on the continent? How are we going to cope with all this? And this is where the sort of early uh uh let's call called the nucleus of civil affairs comes from this this very real concern about what are they going to do with civilian populations
1: and how much does that moment at the start of the war, when there is this retreat, how instructive is that? Because I I really got the sense that this was a moment where military commanders on the Allied side almost felt that the civilian population was disruptive and mm-hmm. it, 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 perhaps even harmful to the efforts of the military. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how instructive was that and how did the civilian affairs of view then the civilian population at the time were they viewed as almost a nuisance that they had to be dealt with think basically get out of our way because in a sense as you're retreating if they're getting in your way i, I could see how people who are, are in charge could view them in a very negative light
0: sure sure um i mean i think first thing to understand is there wasn't even a civil affairs in 1940 so this was there was no sort of organization that was established yet that was even meant to deal with the civilian population so so they were very much the civilians were seen as in the way they were seen as a threat to the conduct of military operations and so when the allied leadership kind of goes back back to london and and as the war progresses the discussions are very clearly about how do we prevent civilians from blocking or hindering military operations so that This is the major thing about civil affairs is this is not humanitarian first, right? Civil affairs is, is part, of the, uh, it's part of the search for uh, 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 the ability to fight an effective war. It just so happens that they, the, the allied leadership um, understand that tens of thousands of refugees could very well hurt the ability for the allies to execute the war efficiently and effectively and quickly. And so out of this experience, the instructive element of France in the summer, or in the spring summer of 1940, the instructive aspect of it is simply that if we don't do something about the civilians, they will likely hurt our ability to fight the war.
1: So in the intervening years, as you mentioned, they they start to plan and think about when we get back onto the continent, how are we going to be able to do this? And the first chapter Mm -hmm. of the book talks about previous experiences within Mm -hmm. the Commonwealth countries. So with with specific reference to the Boer war and the first world war, and I'm particularly curious about the Boer war and the colonial implications that go along Mm -hmm. with that in terms of, again, how civilians are viewed. So how much did those two experiences from the Boer and I'm, I'm really interested in the Boer War too, but also the First World War. How much are those experiences guiding the discussions that are taking place in the intervening years between the retreat and then the eventual attack back onto the continent?
0: Well, I mean, the, the, and you've identified one of the big problems is, of course, the, the Boer, War, um, uh, it, it, Boer War especially is sort of steeped incredibly in this sort of imperialistic Rhetoric and, and steeped in empire and, and the, the sort of imperialist adventure, um, I would I would say that the only aspects of this that informed British administration was simply how how do you create an organization to administer a territory? The, the simple fact is that when they were in in the years after the fall of France and before the invasion of Northwest Europe, so from you know late 1940 onwards, they understood very clearly that they weren't they were not for the most part, entering into a country to occupy it, uh, like they did, let's say, in the Boer War, where it was seen as sort of enemy territory, right? Um, or occupied or conquered territory. For the for the most part, they, they were talking about liberating and getting people to join in with, with the fight, and join in on the side of the Allies. So a lot of that colonialist rhetoric was sort of shed very quickly um, after after the First World War, actually, or, or sorry, by the time the Second World War, World War started, they shed a lot of that colonialist rhetoric and they kept uh, uh, effectively the the structural lessons learned, not the sort of imperialist or colonialist experiences. Those were sort of left to the wayside. Number one, because they viewed most of the European nations as friends, especially France. Belgium and the Netherlands, obviously. Um, and number two, there's a- absolutely a racial element of this and that these were white populations and not non-white populations that were being liberated as well. So that element of the colonialist uh, 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 leftover you know, sentiment is, is sort of shed easily, or not easily, but certainly shed quickly by uh, Allied planners uh, in the early years of the Second World War.
1: And does the technology of the, the war Change that as well. You know, if if you think about back to the the Boer War, First World War, airplanes not as important as during the Second World War. Do those factor in as well as their are thinking back on previous experiences? How does new technology? How do new efforts uh, towards warfare change the relationship to the civilian population?
0: Yes, uh, absolutely, and especially and, and and you you've you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, air power. Uh, in the Second World War, the ability to destroy cities is very, very uh, 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 real and, and realized. And this means that, uh, uh, you know, French cities and Belgium cities and Dutch cities and, and, and German cities are being destroyed. And that means that when the army arrives, you know, like the city of Caen in, in, in Normandy, which is utterly flattened by Allied uh, air power, by Allied bombers, uh, there is a responsibility by the military to have to deal with the civilian populations that are now refugees uh, or displaced persons as a result. There's a responsibility for the military to deal with the casualties as a result. And this isn't a responsibility rooted in the humanitarian principle. This is a responsibility rooted in the idea that if we don't do something about this, we'll either alienate the civilian population so they can't help us, or we will have to deal with you know thousands and thousands of refugees clogging up the road networks that we need to execute our military operations successfully.
1: So was there an expectation on the planners' part that as the war progressed and as they made their plans to take back France and then eventually advance to Belgium and the Netherlands, was there an expectation that they had that civilians would almost go with them? Or was there a sense that civilians would still want to remain in place Until the war actually ended. And how do they account for what civilians might want to do in terms of their mobility at a time where getting around would still have been very dangerous?
0: Right. And, and Well, I think the, the the answer to that is the civilian concern wasn't as important as the military concern. So right. I'll give you I'll give you the example is they would evacuate civilians from, uh, you know, destroyed urban centers or from the front line or from areas where they were about to engage in battle. And when civilians were trying to return, they the military would effectively stop them. There would be sort of a stay in place order uh, and you would see military police arresting civilians who uh, uh, disobeyed the order of the allied leadership. So the, 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 the bottom line was the military very much was going to do what was best for the military. Now, uh, uh, they, they did this with certainly an, an, an eye to how do we care for these people? Because they do consider them, you know, friends. They considered the French population liberated allied populations. They considered Belgians, Dutch, etc. So there of course is, a uh, uh A basic principle that we have to treat these people with some level of of concern and and care. Um, But at, at, at all times, the military necessity would 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 override it. So if this meant restricting the freedoms of civilian populations recently liberated, then that was the reality on the ground. And the allied military, frankly, would enforce it. The expectation was that eventually a allied friendly government would be put in place. And that Allied friendly government would be able to um, eventually stand on its own two feet, so to speak, would be able to administer the country uh, without help from the Allied military, and in turn, by administering the country, turn the country in support of the war effort. So, you know, in Belgium, for instance, we see all of these fractious resistance groups that all are angry at each other. Well, by the time they finally, the, the Allies sort of prop up. The belgian political administration they begin to recruit these resistance groups and these resistance fighters into the military that military in turn eventually joins the allies on the push towards germany so the hope is that at some point here you have rehabilitated the nation you have rehabilitated the administration you have rehabilitated the civilians in a way that they now can be positive contributors to the
1: allied war effort how is that not nation building though
0: um, because the minute that, uh, well, okay. Uh, in, in one way it is because of course the allies are not going to support a government <laughs> right.
1: that they don't yeah. is
0: going to be friendly to the war effort. <laughs> so of course there is a component of that. Um, but you, you have to understand that the allies are working very closely with governments in exile. There are a number of agreements and documents and treaties that are signed with these governments in exile that outline the sort of policies and the plans that will be implemented once they arrive in that country. So it isn't like the Allies arrive and start making things up on the spot. There are very real plans in place for every country, and those plans have been created and crafted with the governments in exile uh, uh, or the Allied-recognized governments in exile operating in great britain so you know perhaps there's a there's a component in nation building there but the minute the idea at least let's just say the objective is the minute that the allied military feels that these governments can now run on their own the allied military wants to free themselves completely from administration because the the resources required the time the personnel the money spent is is is, is It's too much for the Allied military to worry about for the duration of the war. They want to focus on the fighting part. They want to leave the political administration to uh, these newly established, uh, friendly governments.
1: So let's talk about the military side of it. The book really goes June 1944 to June 1945 and tracks the Canadians as they work inland Mm -hmm. through Europe. So let's start with June 1944 and the initial push Uh, You have D-Day, of course, in June of 1944. So what role does the civilian affairs play in planning that attack? Are they in the room as they craft the plans to go to the beaches? And what significance do they have within that whole planning process?
0: The civil affairs doesn't have much to do with um, planning of the battle. What, What ends up happening is, the operation, the attack, the battles, they get planned by combat, you know, the combat leadership. The plan, there will be a civil affairs officer often at most levels of, of the military command structure. So basically at every sort of headquarters from the division all the way up to Eisenhower's uh, headquarters, uh, there is our civil affairs officers present. They might provide feedback on uh, uh, certain aspects of the plans but when it comes to actually planning out battles civil affairs has very little input what they do is they're sort of given the battle plan and then they're told how can you operate within this battle plan so when it comes to invading normandy in june 1944 the the civil affairs the the, the guys sort of the senior civil affairs officers back in back in england are sort of told the plan and they're said, now you guys got to start to b- build your plan around our plan. So how are you going to evacuate? Where are your, what, wh- what back roads can you use for refugee movement? Where can you uh, create refugee centers where, where you can take care of these people? What cities are you going to operate in? What detachments are you, you going to, uh, uh order into certain regions? But very much civil affairs has to work within the plans already established by the, uh, by, by the allied leadership.
1: And who are these folks who are working in civilian affairs? How does a Canadian army, a member of the Canadian army, find their way to civilian affairs?
0: Great question. Uh, So a lot of the civil affairs officers were either a combination of Canadian officers who were considered too old for combat. And by too old, uh, uh, that that basically means people in their 30s, which is incredible to believe. But that is the truth, um, which which has someone in their 30s uh, just hurts me every time I have to read that. Uh, and so it was either officers that were considered too old for combat, but still had sort of something to offer in terms of organizational or logistic capabilities. But a lot of the civil affairs officers were also uh, uh men parliament it was a male uh heavily a male organization all exclusively a male organization actually uh, were drawn from civilian life so for instance you have a lot of academics who end up end up in civil affairs you have historians you have linguists you have uh, art historians you you have um lawyers uh from you know who help impose legal systems you have economists you have bankers so It's a kind of a a real hodgepodge organization. On one hand, you have these sort of officers, these these military men who have been lifers in the Canadian military. And on the other hand, you have guys who have been recruited from civilian life who have very little military experience, but a wide range of civilian experience, which they can then apply uh, on the front lines as they're dealing with these civilian populations.
1: So once the military gets on the ground in Europe, the book takes, I believe you call it a... Geochronological approach in the book, <laughs> yes. right? <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> um, so, so how do the local realities in each spot really affect what they're what they're doing? And if we take, say, Italy first, uh, because that's the second chapter of the book is is Italy. You know, how prepared are they for the specifics of what's happening in Italy and what the population is is doing in Italy, and what, if anything, catches them off guard?
0: Well, I would argue that Italy a lot catches them off guard uh, in Italy. Italy is the the testing ground for the concept of what was at the time called allied military government, which was sort of this what we could call maybe the beta version of civil affairs. Uh, it They 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 implemented AMG in Italy in order to deal with the civilian population, but there was um, very, very real and serious issues with the organization. Um, A long list of problems were discovered. It was, you know, a a training ground, a a real-time training ground that uh, unfortunately was not as successful as a lot of the proponents of civil affairs would have liked. And the problem is coming out of Italy – there are so many issues that a lot of the senior allied military leadership start to question the use of civil affairs as a concept as a whole because of the problems in Italy. So when when they are preparing for the invasion of Northwest Europe, they actually end up having to change the name of allied military government to civil affairs. And one of the big reasons for this name change is simply that by 1944, allied military government has gotten a very, very bad rap amongst the Western allies because of the problems faced in Italy. So by the time they go into Northwest Europe, it's now officially civil affairs. That term is now being used. Um, But the one thing that often got forgotten about Italy is while they learned a lot about what not to do, they also learned a lot about what to do. And There were actually a lot of positive lessons to come out of Italy. So by the time civil affairs is sort of implemented as this organization in Northwest Europe, um, it is a much more refined version of what they saw in Italy. It had solved a lot of the problems. The issue is, of course, and you've identified this in your question, is that every country poses very unique challenges. So no matter what doctrine, no matter what lessons have been learned in one region, it's it, it, the story sort of unfolds that every time they enter a new country, there was kind of a brand new problem they have to solve in real time on the ground. So this means that civil affairs has to be extremely flexible. There is no one size fits all. There is no sort of one doctrine that they can use. The the key about and the the, the sort of what marks the civil affairs is so unique is this incredible flexibility everywhere they went, this problem-solving ability as an organization dealing with very unique problems in every single country.
1: And it also strikes me that there could be a possibility of here you have this organization, it is there designed to understand what the civilian population is going to do. But as you mentioned, the priority goes to military operations. So Mm -hmm. it, it strikes me that this could also be a place that is primed for cases of abuse and poor treatment of civilians, given the prioritization. Is that a factor or an issue at any point in the year that you're covering,
0: well, you know, it's that's a great question, and one of the one of the you're absolutely right. There is so much room for 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 abuse uh, 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 to to occur, but in the documents and the primary sources that I that I looked at, in, in the archival documents that I read, and I read far too many of them to the point where my brain was fried. <laughs> but for many many years, but nonetheless, generally speaking the civilian populations uh uh were very were very friendly were very positive um when speaking about their experiences with the canadian military and with civil affairs in particular the only time that we see a bit more tension result um is when the canadians are stuck in a place for a very long time because uh, for instance in the case of belgium and even in in parts of the southern uh, uh southern netherlands or sort of southern holland The Canadian army is there for an extended period of time, and a term starts to be used called the friendly occupation of the Belgians, the friendly occupation of the Dutch. Um, And what this means is Canadian military law is, is is, 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 is supreme in these areas. So these civilians who were recently liberated now find themselves sometimes for weeks and then months on end. Having to be run or having to live in a country that is effectively being run by the Canadian military until they can finally move on and hand over authority to the to, to the civilian government and that is where you see some of the tension uh, uh, rise up but generally speaking and I, and I say this without trying to toot the horn i 'm not trying to be some sort of uber nationalist in saying this, but civil affairs does an extremely Good job at maintaining very cordial relations with all the civilian populations that it encounters. Certainly, there are issues with collateral damage, civilian death from from combat, civilian death from uh, you know uh, uh, allied bombers. There are issues with the fact that the military rules and regulations are being forced onto civilian populations. Some 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 civilians are evacuated from places without their permission. Some are not allowed to return when they want to return. So there's always going to be some tension there. But generally speaking, civil affairs is able to navigate uh, uh, this in, in a very effective way. It's only in Germany where things really uh, uh, become quite different in terms of the relationship between the civilians and civil affairs. But obviously uh, that, that, that's because Germany is not a liberated ally. It is a conquered enemy.
1: Right. So let's let's talk about Germany then. And I do want to get back to Belgium in a minute. But uh, the, the German example is quite fascinating because, as you mentioned, it is different from everywhere else uh, f- versus the friendly occupations, as you said. So what was the plan for Germany when they were crafting what to do, knowing that? it would be a hostile people in all likelihood uh, that the individuals there would be hostile to the Allied forces coming in. So Mm -hmm. what was their plan for that? And how did they expect to maintain a sense of peace, if not control within Germany once they arrived?
0: Well, they were going to maintain it with the barrel of a gun, right. Sean. <laughs> um, yeah. the, the the simple fact was they expected the population to, if not if not being outright hostile, to be um, um, certainly non-cooperative. Uh, the plan was that they would impose what's called military government. So now what's really interesting is you have these civil affairs officers who have just gone through Northwest Europe as civil affairs officers. And the minute they cross the border into Germany, they are now military government officers. They represent a military government, meaning this is not about handing over control to a civilian body as soon as possible. They are going in to impose allied military authority for a for an extended period of time for an undetermined period of time they are going to denazify the country so for civil affairs officers that enter into northwest germany where the canadians end up occupying one of their first jobs is to find the nazis arrest local nazis and then try to now this is the hard part and then try to find people who are not nazis to create some sort of civilian administration that they can work with some sort of friendly uh, 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 you know civil uh, administration so it's a very uh, a very challenging task as you can imagine because after obviously you know years and years and years of the Nazi party being in power um I'm, i can only imagine how hard it must have been to try to find some guy to be a mayor of a town yeah. who somehow was not a nazi or not associated with the nazis in, in any way right. um so the problem was the, the the big issue was how do how do you denazify germany but then create some sort of c- civilian representative representation that you can use to work with to sort of impose military government authority, Uh, a big challenge.
1: Yeah. And as you say, that leads to some tension. And yeah, the idea of finding not Nazis or or people who would want to take a public role who were not affiliated with the Nazis certainly creates a a significant challenge uh, on the ground for folks. And that does create a, an interesting counter to Belgium. If we, if we want to get back to Belgium real quick, sure. uh, I of course have a soft spot for the Belgian people. Uh, they're very nice in, in all my interactions with them, but that is pretty much a 180, right? Between what mm-hmm. you what you see in Germany. But I also have this question about Belgium that mm-hmm. is somewhat similar to Germany in that Belgians would have, anyone who stayed at least, would have been under German occupation for the second time in 25 years. Mm-hmm. So how do the Belgians react? And is there this sense of, well, like we've done this before, uh, mm-hmm. is, is there mistrust because of everything that happened 25 years earlier?
0: Um, the bell, the, well, the Belgians certainly welcome, uh, on liberation, uh, uh, just like they did in, in the, in the first world war when it, when it finally came and and, um, So the Belgians are very, very happy to see the Canadians roll in. They're very eager to cooperate with the Canadian military administration. Uh, The problem is the Canadians get stuck in Belgium Belgium for for quite a long time. And and what ends up happening is the Belgians start to get very tired of Belgian women dating Canadian soldiers. Uh, There's a lot of black market issues with Canadian uh, military equipment. Um, there are a lot of problems with the Belgian government. That's the Allied-friendly Belgian government. Uh, a lot of people have a problem with the General Hubert Um, and there there are a lot of issues with the resistance too. The the resistance groups, um, when Belgium is liberated, the resistance a lot of resistance groups are very kind of upset at the fact that the Allies are backing this government in exile when these various resistance groups have been in the country for the you know for most of the occupation um and so there's a, there's it's a very very complicated political landscape that the Canadians enter into and, and this is again going back to these civil affairs guys it's their job to deal with this landscape you know we often think of the canadians go in and they liberate and everyone's happy and yeah. and on they onwards they go but it's far more nuanced and far more delicate and far more complicated and it's not The combat soldier who is actually dealing with these nuances who's dealing with this complicated landscape it is the civil affairs officer because the guys some guys got to go fight someone has to deal with this angry resistance leader here this government in exile this group here and these laborers over here and the fact that there's no police and the weapons are going on and on and on that's civil affairs's job so there's all of these very very complicated tasks that they have to deal with when they enter into belgium and and the big problem in, in the book and and if, in the chapter, you'll you see that there's the, one of the major issues is with uh, with resistance groups, and and it becomes a very very tense uh, situation dealing with so many different ones.
1: The book talks a lot about Antwerp and particularly the port. And when you're talking about the various factions that are might be upset that the Canadians and the allies are are working with governments that aren't currently in the country when these resistance forces were there, they also aren't capable of. Reopening the port and protecting it against submarines. So how important is opening up that port not only to convince some of the resistance groups that their presence is necessary and that the support is essential, but also in terms of just having that open for an easier movement of goods and food and, and supplies for the people on the ground. It, it strikes me that of all the things in here that, that we talk about, the port of Antwerp is pretty high on the power rankings of yes. significant moments for this group of people.
0: To be perfectly honest, Sean, Antwerp is the this, the seizure of Antwerp, the control of it, and the eventual opening, opening up of the Shelf estuary, which allows vessels to finally come into Antwerp, is... Arguably Canada's most important military accomplishment of the war, and I know this is kind of shocking to people who are so used to Juno Beach and Normandy and, and and whatnot. The port of Antwerp is absolutely vital to the logistic uh, 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 security and to the logistics of 21st Army Group. This is I can't stress how important this city and its. And its port was to bringing in supplies to as 21st Army Group was moving um, east, because with Antwerp and with the seizure of the port of Antwerp and the use of it, this allows 21st Army Group, of which First Canadian Army is a part of this will allow 21st Army Group to go to Germany.
1: Right. So this
0: port is so vital uh, uh, to the war effort that it, it is it is absolutely needed um, in order to allow 21st Army Group to continue the push into Germany. And so when you're talking about the sort of strategic importance of it, it it, it can't be overstated. And yet here you have this story of Canadian civil affairs officers having to basically get the port functioning, having to figure out ways to keep people going to work every day, despite the fact that German uh, bombs are dropping on the city, the V weapons, etc. So. It is a, an incredibly challenging task, but it's one that is incredibly important to the broader war effort. So it's very fascinating just to think for a second that these, these civil affairs officers that no one really knows anything about, I'm talking about in the decades following the Second World War, um, no one really writes about, no one really recognizes in any of the narratives of the war experience, are the guys who are keeping that port functioning, who are keeping the population at least mollified enough that they're willing to do the work to get those supplies continually coming in to allow 21st Army Group to continue its push eastward.
1: And then the other chapter that we haven't talked about yet is what happens in the Netherlands, arguably, perhaps from from my reading of it, the most challenging situation, if you, if you look at all the factors involved. Is that a fair way to look at it?
0: Yeah, I I, I argue that the work of civil affairs in the Netherlands is, is the the apogee of their achievement. It is this sort of the finest moment of civil affairs, I think, because at this moment, for a brief period of time, the humanitarian concerns actually outweigh the military concerns. It's a very unique moment in the campaign where they say, well, shouldn't we wouldn't the best thing for the Dutch people be to just destroy the enemy and win the war as fast as possible? And what Canadian Civil Affairs does as they argue and, and, and other members of the Dutch royal family and, and other people within in the Netherlands argue pretty, pretty successfully that actually the lack of food, the starvation crisis that is emerging by 1945 is, is so bad that simply just focusing on the fighting will not might actually lead to a greater humanitarian crisis. And so civil affairs is sort of tasked with trying to figure out a way to bring food, to desperately uh, uh, to desperate uh, Dutch people and this becomes a massive massive task um, and is you know not just the highlight of the Canadian civil affairs experience but someone argue the highlight of the Canadian war experience overall too.
1: And you made reference to it earlier. how influential is that in the way the Dutch think of the Canadians? We have certainly in, in Ottawa, we have the festival every year, right? The Tulip Festival mm-hmm. and everything's yep. great. And the, the relationship between mm-hmm. the two countries, we celebrate it. But yep. as we talked about before we started to record, I think of it in the sense of, well, the Canadians were there and during the liberation. And I think of the military side of it. I don't right. think of the civilian side of it. So when we're remembering this and thinking back on that relationship and, and the warm feelings that still exist in 2021. Yep. How do we try to situate the civilian affairs within that relationship and really fostering it to the point where it is still celebrated today?
0: Well, I I think this is this is that gray area that no one really thinks about is, you know, this idea that the Canadian military goes in, liberates the Netherlands and everyone's best friends for the rest of their lives. Uh, and, and, And there's there's a totally there's a missing piece of this, which is, well, actually, how did that relationship start? Who was in charge of that relationship? And that was civil affairs. So when these guys go into the Netherlands um, and the combat soldiers liberate, and there's these scenes that you know people jumping on jeeps and celebrating with the soldiers, well, the soldiers move on, and behind them, right on the heels of these soldiers, are, are, is a civil affairs detachment. And it's that detachment, it's those civil affairs officers, it's those people that are, are hired by civil affairs that work in that organization who actually do the the groundwork on establishing and creating. These powerful relationships. And when it comes to things like um, feeding uh, uh, Dutch children, for instance, it's civil affairs that are organizing it. It's a civil affairs officer who is in charge of the of the entire uh, uh, operation. It's it's civil affairs officers who are the ones working with Dutch um, um, representatives to to bring allied food supplies into the region to distribute them, etc., so that relationship that we're talking about and that, you know, and I, I've been in the Netherlands uh, several times and it's always driven home how profound, how profoundly connected the Netherlands and Canada is that that relationship is a product of the success of civil affairs. Uh, that is a way to measure how successful civil affairs was in this, you know, Herculean effort to to bring food and supplies to uh, a people that had been ravaged by years of occupation.
1: Why is that that? These guys aren't written about a lot. That there hasn't been a lot of study of their work. The introduction goes into pretty good detail of well, there's not much exists in Canada that at yeah. the time after after the war, uh, C.P. Stacey and and that crew started something and then didn't finish it for a variety of reasons. So what is it that uh, about this? I mean, I understand that when you look at certainly Juno Beach and and Normandy and all that stuff the italian campaign like the military side of it is quite fascinating and there is to a certain extent uh, the same thing that you see in the first world war around vimy ridge and the nation building and the we did this side of it and i guess to a certain extent bureaucratic uh, functions that don't get as much attention and aren't aren't quite as interesting (laughs) but it is as you argue it does really seem that this is essential to the successful prosecution of the war so why yeah. hasn't it gotten a full study until now and even at that you do talk about how this isn't the most thorough study that there's still room for other people to come in into the oh, space yeah. to, to write about this so so what is it that it's taken 75 years
0: <laughs> well uh you know honestly sean it's because people are. More interested in battles more often than not than everything else, and uh, I think that uh, Canadian military history, just like American military history, just like British military history, in the aftermath of the Second World War and the decades that followed, for a very very long time, the focus was on battles, tanks, guns, victory, you know, men, male male generals, et cetera, et cetera, and a lot of the great work that has been done in the last fifteen years in this country. Uh, the great, brilliant new historiography that's been coming out for I'd say a decade and a half, if not two decades, at the time, no one thought that was actually part of the military history canon. Uh, that it wasn't really important. Uh, that that the only thing that was really important were the battles being fought and the and the sacrifices that soldiers were making. And as as I'm sure you know, and as I'm sure many of the listeners know, uh, what we've discovered in the last 10 to 20 years is that that that's only one part of a much broader spectrum of how wars are fought and the relationship between militaries and society and war and society. So I think that we're just in a time now where people are much more open to the idea that wars are not just fought on the battlefield. Wars are fought in many different ways from the home front to the rear echelon to the logistics services to you know, c- civilian unions that are being formed. I mean, there's mi- there's a myriad of ways in which wars are fought, and we are now Canadian military historiography over the last 20 years has exploded in looking at the various ways. So I think it's just we're just in a time, an academic and intellectual period in, in Canadian military history in particular where this type of research and this these type of topics are just are far more uh, embraced and are sought out by uh, uh, historians uh, of my peers and my colleagues.
1: How much of that has to do, especially over the past, I guess, 20 years now, with the Canadian involvement overseas? And when we look at the Middle East, certainly Mm -hmm. right after 9-11 and uh, the the start of the, the war in Afghanistan, the idea of having to win over hearts and minds. I remember Mm -hmm. hearing that phrase a lot. Mm -hmm. And certainly that has some echoes into what you're writing about. So how much Mm -hmm. does the contemporary perspective of what military operations or or a significant part of military operations in the 21st century for for Canada have been, how much does that influence, do you think, the way we would now consider the efforts back in that 1944-1945 period that you're looking at?
0: Oh I think it, it I think it plays a significant part in making my book relevant uh something that I don't think would have been you know I mean this is counterfactual but had the book been released prior to 911 I don't think uh it would it would nearly have a reception that it's had so far in its brief time um alive and I think a big part of that is because we mo- most people who pay attention to Canadian military operations in the post 911 era are very aware that civilians are a feature of the battlefield and not just a feature but a very important feature that you know you can win a battle but you can lose you can lose the war simply by failing to take into account the civilian populations that you're either trying to help or that are just there in theater um this is a reality of modern combat and what's interesting sean is that actually in the united states and in great britain there's a lot more written about civil affairs than there is in Canada. I mean, those militaries have spent immense amounts of resources and academics have spent an immense amount of time looking at the history of the the relationship between their respective militaries and the civilian populations. It's only for some reason in Canada that this has has been relatively ignored uh, uh, in our our historiography. And and, I mean, I I don't really know why specifically, but I do know that post 9-11, there has been a greater interest in this country in not just conflict, but the, the nature of conflict and, and, and how um, it plays out, not just in killing bad guys or what type of tanks we're using, but in, in the very, you know, in the wide range of ways in which conflict is, 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 is fought and, and supported in this country. So we do live in a, in a time period where more people are aware of the complications of war modern war. And that makes books like this and and other ones that my peers have released, uh, it makes them much more relevant, I think, to to the average reader.
1: Yeah. And as you say, something that's much more front of mind when we think about military operations. And I I do think that uh, this will prompt more people to get into this area of military history. I hope so. Uh, I want to say, too, that I mentioned at the top, you do the Cool Canadian History Podcast, and you've used the part of the book. I assume that it's used heavily in the episode on the Canadian civil affairs and the Belgian resistance. Yep. Uh, so elsewhere out there, just, I just want to talk about the the show a little bit. I've listened to a couple of them. Uh, it's different from this. It's more narrative in, in focus, which is great. Uh, a little shorter than what we usually do too. The, the one I, I listened to today, the mass grave in Capriol, Ontario, yeah. uh, about yep. 27, eight minutes ish. Mm -hmm. in that range so so this is season six of the show uh what prompted Mm -hmm. you to want to get into the very lucrative business of canadian history (laughs) podcasting david (laughs) yes yes
0: uh, a great question um you know honestly six years ago i uh there was no canadian history podcast to listen to it was straight up i i started to get into podcasts i was i you know and i'm very cliched in saying this but obviously listen to mike duncan's history of rome which sort of set the bench for, for narrative based history podcasts. And I started to say, well, where's a Canadian version of it? And, and there wasn't one. So I, I, I started one on my own um, and, and stumbled my way through the first couple of seasons. <laughs> but, but now by season six, uh, we, you know, we've hit our, we've hit our rhythm and a, a groove and, 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 you know, it's, it's meant to be, it's meant to be a short and sweet version of a variety of history events. Now I'm a, I'm a military historian um, but I, I work really hard not to just do everything about the military on it. Um, I, 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 I very much am aware of my where my historical biases might lean. so I, I try very hard to keep the military topics uh, limited and try to do a wide range of, of, of aspects of Canadian history, which is dynamic because like any historian, I don't know everything. I, you know right. I, I know a lot about a very few things you know and, and so I, I'm, I, it definitely tests my research abilities and it definitely means I'm always, looking for new articles or new new material or new subject matter that can make a episode but you know it's it's fun and i and we have a great listenership i think we have over three thousand listeners subscribed listeners and and uh i get a lot of great feedback from people and we seem to be doing well on the ratings and it seems generally that it's fitting a niche for people who want to learn more about this this country but don't necessarily want to have to follow let's say a a storyline or something like that
1: yeah. And just looking through season six, you got John Labatt in here. You got uh, Sesame Street. You got the Famous Five. Mm-hmm. You got John and Yoko. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you got your military history. You got Tim Cook in there. So, you know, yeah. it's, you, know you got that. Uh, culinary, an episode on culinary connections to Canadian history. This is great. And you can sort of see a little bit, uh, as you mentioned, sort of the wide reading of things uh, that, that yes. you do to go into this. And, uh, yes. you know, I, I just look at this and I think of, some of the historians who I'm sure you've worked with and, and read, and uh, it's super fun. That I I do think this is a, a great way to combine all of the work that's done in Canadian history in a, a in a entertaining, digestible format. So uh, that's over well, at coolcanadianhistory.com. You. So we certainly encourage everybody to check that one out as well. Is and is there anything where else that they can? Go obviously wherever they're listening to this, you can yeah, find it I guess through whatever, all those outlets. Whatever,
0: yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The same platform you're listening to us talk right now is probably the same platform you'll find cool Canadian history. And we got socials up too, in Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that. But obviously, it's if you like podcasts, you probably know where to go to find it as it is.
1: Yes, and uh, the book. Uh, what would you say for folks who want to get the book? Where can they find it?
0: Well, uh, it's published by McGill Queens Press. Uh, I would um, recommend you try to ask your local bookstore to order it in or go to your local bookstore and buy it just to support uh, actual bookstores. But if you do not want to go in, and I can understand why you don't in the middle of a pandemic, uh, you can, of course, order it on Amazon. And I'm sure that's probably the easiest for many people. But I hope that uh, some people listening will go down to their local bookstores and ask uh, uh, if it's in stock. And if not, Ask for it to be ordered in.
1: Yes, absolutely. Or at the very least, if you don't, again, if you don't want to go in, you could probably do a curbside pickup at a local bookstore, too. Send them an email. I want this. And I have found that the local stores are really good at finding stuff that you want.
0: Oh, yeah. They're great.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, again, the title of the book, Civilians at the Sharp End First Canadian Army Civil Affairs in Northwest Europe. David Boris, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: So, there you have it. My conversation with David Boris, and I thank him for joining me again. The book is Civilians at the Sharp End. First Canadian Army Civil Affairs in Northwest Europe It is published by our good friends over at McGill, Queens, and we certainly thank them for helping to set all this up today and encourage you to check it out, as David said through your local bookstore. They'll be able to track that down for you. And do check out Cool Canadian History. Great podcast that David does, as you said, in the middle of season six over at Cool Canadian History. So definitely check that one out wherever it is you get your podcast. So that'll do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Give us the likes, give us the ratings. Tell other people about the show. Helps us grow, helps keep us... Going head on over to activehistory.ca as well. Some great material over there on Wednesday, which is yesterday as we post this A great post about the first ever raid on a gay bathhouse in Canada. A really fascinating tale there. So definitely check that one out. Uh, and some of the other material from last month, which was a great month over on the site. I got to say a lot of wonderful pieces published in February. So head on over to activehistory. history. You can also find all of our past episodes under the podcast tab. And of course, I always want to know what you want to hear on the show. So feel free to reach out, historyslam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So that'll do it for this week. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me.